So this morning we have two readings from the book of Daniel. The first is Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 14, and that is on page 892 of the Bibles that we have in church. Daniel 7, verses 9 to 14. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting. Dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Our second reading also comes from the book of Daniel. It's chapter 12 and verses 1 to 5. That's on page 898. Daniel 12, 1 to 5. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes will sleep in the dust of the earth, will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who are led, who led many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up the seal, the words of the scroll, until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. Here ends today's reading. Confused yet? Beasts and thrones, books and sons of men, fire and chariots and everything. What can it mean? And what does it have to do with what we've been looking at? Heaven and hell. Well, this week we look past the key message that we've been looking at over the last four weeks or so 
of heaven and hell being the here and now, things that we can build for in this life, and look with more focus towards eternity, and ask, according to the Old Testament, what is heaven and hell like? As always, when we read the Bible, in order to understand what Daniel is saying to us, we need to understand exactly what we are reading, especially when the passages are as complex of the ones that I've read out this morning. Parts of Daniel, in fact the parts that we are looking at today, as well as others in chapter 8 and 9, are what are called apocalyptic writings. That is, that they talk of the apocalypse. And this in itself can be confusing, and this in itself has caused many to stumble on their translations about what these passages and others like it are about, because the word apocalypse in our day and age, is different to what it means in the time when the book of Daniel and other parts of the Bible, such as the book of Revelation, was written. Today, if somebody was to say the word to you, apocalypse, you would probably think, oh, it means the end of the world. In the sense of films like Apocalypse Now, which tell the story of the earth coming to an end and what will happen. Some great big event brings the earth crashing down. The final days, what we might have heard called the end times, that's what we might be tempted to think that this is all about, because that is what the word commonly means in our day and age. So when we come to the book of Daniel, we might reasonably think that we're going to get a blow-by-blow account of what horrific event will destroy our planet, what will bring the end of the world. Will it be one tweet too far by President Donald Trump? Will Kim Jong-un finally push a nuclear button that works? Will Brexit be the beginning of the end, as some news outlets seem to want us to believe? Or will we just go the same way as the dinosaurs, and a meteorite destroy the world as we know it, like the fantastic film Deep Impact? Actually, sorry to disappoint, but the Bible doesn't give that level of detail, because apocalypse does not mean Armageddon, in the sense that it's used in the Bible. In the sense of Daniel and Revelation and other passages like this which are elsewhere that you may have read, apocalypse is a genre like romance or crime or horror would be today. If you were to sit down and to open a murder mystery book, you would know that some certain things were going to happen as you read. That somewhere towards the start of the story, someone was going to get killed, because there has to be a murder in order to be solved. And that the rest of the book would be working out who done it. And you would probably think, well, it won't be the person I thought it was at the beginning, because that's how murder mysteries work. So apocalyptic writing, the talk of the apocalypse, is simply a genre that reveals something. The Greek word that this word comes from literally means an uncovering of something. Therefore, in Daniel and other places, we are given a divine glimpse of how God will deal with evil and uphold those who image bear in his name. And the vision of Daniel in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 and chapter 9 all the way through to chapter 12 as well, have this narrative framework. In fact, they're classic examples (coughs) of what apocalyptic writing is like. Where a message is given by an otherworldly thing, it could be an angel, it could be something else, 
to a human which portrays the realities of the day and how this plays out supernaturally, some may argue futuristically. If we wanted to define it in modern terms, we might loosely try vivid and highly imaginative poetry that is about the things of God. But if that doesn't help you or if that's problematic, then don't worry about it too much. So that is broadly what this type of writing that seems so odd to us because we don't have it today is all about. It's uncovering and showing us something about God like the rest of the Bible. Having said that, although the passage we're looking at today is apocalyptic writing, the whole of Daniel is not. And to understand how these parts of Daniel that are more complex relate to the rest and to know what they're saying, we need to understand the context and the framework of the rest of the book of Daniel. And so if you've ever read the book of Daniel, you've probably realised that the first six chapters are a lot easier than the second six chapters. They seem a lot more simple, they're more narrative, they tell us the account and stories of Daniel's life. In fact, if you were to look more closely, you'd realise that actually there seems to be something quite funny in the way that these stories are laid out. Because between chapters 2 and 7, there seems to be a pattern of chapters relating to each other with a similar theme. So to go into more detail, chapter 1 isn't part of this pattern, but it lays out the story of Daniel. It tells how Daniel and some of his friends were taken into exile with the best and the brightest in their land and were made to serve in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 2, we hear that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and Daniel translates it, and basically this dream sets up the idea that human kingdoms can build for hell. That human kingdoms often display violence and rebellion to God. And the translation is that one day, God will deal with evil. God will deal with the things that is opposed to him. If we then jump to chapter 7, we see that there's a similar message going on, as we shall see in the passage that we're looking at this morning. That Daniel has a vision and a dream with this thing going on, that there are kingdoms that are opposed to God, and then God will deal with it in the fullness of time. In chapter 3, we hear of God rescuing the faithful from the fiery furnace. Not Daniel, but his friends. And in chapter 6, we hear of God rescuing the faithful, this time Daniel, from the lion's den, they relate to each other. Chapters 4 and 5 are about two kings, Nebuchadnezzar um, and Belshazzar, who are told to repent and suffer and both become like beasts. The only difference between these two stories is that Nebuchadnezzar repents and is restored to his throne and his kingdom. Belshazzar does not. Thus, by the time we get to the chapter which our passage is in, which is why I'm telling you all this, the following things have been established. The earthly kingdoms seem to have the habit of building for hell, not heaven, building for things that don't uphold the way that God wants the world to be, who seem to um, persecute and damage the faithful, those who bear God's image. And chapters 2 to 7 are all about God dealing with these powers, which bring us to our passage. So in chapter 7, Daniel has a dream. Some call it a vision. Different translations say different things. And the vision is described within our passage and before in verses 1 to 13 
And then the explanation, still in the vision and dream, is given in the second part of Daniel chapter 7, in verses 15 to 28. And when we read through this whole vision, we find that we have four beasts, which are representative of kingdoms opposed to God. Kingdoms that are building for hell and appear to be persecuting the faithful, those who are bearing God's image in the world as it is in Daniel's time and today. And we're told that the final beast, the fourth beast that appears in verse 7, is the worst of all. And it is this beast that God deals with in the final part, in the, in the passage, in the middle of the vision that we're looking at this morning. Our passage, at the end of the vision, before the explanation, is about God dealing with evil opposed to him and sustaining the image bearers who build life in God's name. And from this passage, we find three pictures of heaven and hell in eternity. We find three things that it will look like. Firstly, we find reaffirmed that history will not be endless violence. Again, God's reason for judging in the passage shows us a lot about God's nature, because God is judged in this passage, he's quite clearly judging what the beast has done and dealing with it, quite clearly handing out a punishment for what the beast has done. There's no way to escape it, God is judge in this passage. But the judgment is to deal with evil powers, which are opposed to God, and doing image, and doing image bearers harm. God uses the power that he has to sustain image bearers, to sustain God's good creation, to deal with evil that is opposed to God. And when others have looked at this for centuries, because this writing has been around for centuries, people have tried to place these four kingdoms in human history. Some have placed it in the time of King Antichus, who was around at the time of Daniel, the Syrian king who persecuted Israel. Others have placed it as a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, after Jesus had died and resurrected. Some have even suggested that the fourth beast, the worst beast, is Nazi Germany, while others have pointed to a futuristic kingdom yet to come. But what Daniel 7 is pointing to is more general than that. It's linked but it's more general, because it's pointing to the pattern of human history that we have, where empires and powers seem to rise up, and in the process of rising up and taking power, seem to harm people groups that they overtake, that they take off into exile, that they take over their land from. That these powers, as they get more powerful, seem to draw their own morality of what is right and wrong, and too often put themselves in the place of God. And so it's easy, the reason why it's easy, for people to place these beasts on human history, on empires that have been, is because it happens time and time again. In Daniel's time, it was Babylon, then Persia, then Alexander the Great came next. The Romans were there for centuries, and on and on and on in human history, right up until the present day, where it's still happening, where powerful people seem to oppress the poor, seem to have their own morality, and too often seem to be building for themselves rather than God. Thus the picture of God's judgment reaffirms what we have already found in the rest of the Old Testament in earlier books 
as we've looked through it over the last couple of weeks. That evil will not win and will not last. That the end result isn't violence, isn't creation being destroyed. But that God is all-powerful and will use God's power for the good of creation. (coughs) That God judges to build for the kingdom of heaven. And so when we hear of world leaders flexing their muscles and making threats, when we seem to get nearer and nearer to nuclear war, when we hear of those who are meant to be helping the poor and downtrodden acting immorally, no matter how bad it gets, we know what the end is. That Jesus is coming again and that evil, as we see in this passage, will be destroyed. For the persecuted church, we prayed for them this morning, there is hope here too, as there often is in apocalyptic writing. That when we have suffered for Christ, that suffering will be put right again. That even if people are suffering right now in the context of eternity, that suffering is short-lived. That even those who die at the hands of others for God will be held up in resurrection. That history, as bloodthirsty and as evil as it can be, will not be allowed to diminish into endless eternal violence. And nor will creation be destroyed at the end of it all by violence. And so this judgment happens in the throne room of God. And God is described as the Ancient of Days in the passage. And we see that this throne room, that this heaven coming down is not some far-off place in the passage, but something that God brings in fullness. In verses 9 and 10, we're told that the Ancient of Days comes on the clouds, comes to earth, rather than the people being lifted up and taken to the pearly gates of heaven or God's kingdom elsewhere. Rather, God comes down to earth and judges and recreates. That's the vision that Daniel sees. Later in verse 22, beyond our passage, that verse presupposes that earth is the setting of where this is happening, not some far off place. And we shouldn't be surprised from that, because apart from a few exceptions, the Old Testament talks of God's judgment here, working with good creation right now. And within the vision, God has those who are image-bearing, bearers resurrected, Those whose names are in the book of life, those who have suffered at the hands of evil, are risen up to a glorious resurrected eternity. This is the heaven bit. And because of their image-bearing openness to God, they now rule with Christ in verses 13 and 14. When we look at these verses, we're told that the Son of Man approaches the throne. One who is everything that the beast that we've previously been told about in the earlier part of chapter 7 are not. That where the beasts have built for heaven, the Son of Man, sorry, where the beasts have have built for hell, get that right, the Son of Man builds for heaven. And as 21st century Christians, the natural thing for us to do when we read this is to see the Son of Man as Jesus, because Jesus takes on and uses this title for himself in the Gospels. But it's important to notice and important to think about that the passage does not make this link and is not at all clear on who the Son of Man 
is. There is nothing within what is written in the passage to suggest that this is a messianic figure. As other passages that use that title in the Old Testament tend to do, there's nothing within that. And so there's a great big debate in commentaries over who this um, son of man character is in the way that Daniel, or the person who wrote Daniel, would have meant it in the first place. Some have suggested that it's Ezekiel. Others have suggested it's an angelic visitor. Others have suggested that it's a Messiah-type character. But the passage, which is obvious from the debate, is not really clear. When we're faced with such difficulties, we can do worse then looking at what the original language that the book was written in would mean. And this part of the book of Daniel is written in the Aramaic, and the Aramaic word used is similar to the Greek word translated as Adam at other parts of the Old Testament, like in Genesis, for example. I.e., the son of man is human. What we might say as mankind, meaning humankind. That this son of man is renewed Adam, who has bared God's image, recreated, and now ruling with God. The translation of Jesus, of course, fits with this, as Jesus is the firstborn of new creation, as Paul tells us in the book of Romans. But the focus of Daniel, while incorporating that theology, that's right, that's true, the focus is slightly different. Because it seems to put those who are image bearers in eternity, in perfect, unhindered relationship with God, which we get through Christ, ruling with God. Seems to say that power and authority over all the people of the earth will be given to them. And therefore, could it be that because of our faith in Christ, we are drawn into the Trinity relationship and as created (coughs) beings, I want to emphasise that point, created beings, We rule in the new creation with God. If that's true, and it's just one interpretation, do you notice anything odd at all that is around verse 14? That the Son of Man is worshipped, but there are people still, not people included in this Son of Man people group, worshipping. If the Son of Man is image-bearing humans, as the Aramaic seems to suggest, then who are these other people? Well, the plot thickens even more if we look at how God judges the four beasts within the vision. Earlier in the vision, in verses 4, 5 and 6, the first three beasts appear and pass away one after another. We're then told in verse 12 that they're allowed to live for a little bit longer. The worst and fourth um, comes in verse 7, and this is the one in verse 11 that is destroyed, that is thrown into the fire in verse 26. And we're left in, sorry, thrown into the fire, and in verse 26 we are left in no doubt, as we're told, that it is completely destroyed. But what happens to the other three beasts? Beyond verse 12, which is ambiguous at best, we're not told. So they're not thrown into the fire, at least in the vision of Daniel, and destroyed, nor do they reign as now the Son of Man is reigning. And so this raises some questions about eternal hell, or the theology of eternal hell, a fiery pit 
as tradition has taught, maybe a tradition that you grew up with. Because there is no eternal burning at all in this vision of Daniel. As the beast is thrown into the fire and then ceases to exist, is completely destroyed. It is not eternal punishment, but it is eternal destruction. So in this passage, and we'll look at others in the lead up to Easter and beyond, there is no eternal fiery pit, only a pit used to destroy the worst of all beasts. So is God's judgment different for the other three beasts? The crime of being destroyed is for the amount of damage and destruction the fourth beast does. The vision is clear about that. Because it is the worst, worse than the other three. Is it possible that the other three beasts exist within the people of the earth which are not ruling, not bearing image-bearing patterns of God, not building for the things of heaven? Well, such a thought is not a million miles away from the Old Testament thought which often talks of Israel ruling over their enemies. Not in a way that was vengeful, but in a way that brought God's blessing, even though they were not the people of God. Is this something that is possible for eternity? (coughs) Is there a separation from God? Yes, and a separation from those who have believed in Jesus and accepted him as Lord and Saviour. They're not image bearers, but something that is different to destruction or eternal punishment. Well, the passage does not give a clear answer. It only raises the question. So it's something that we'll leave for now, probably return to in the rest of the preaching series, and I'll let you draw your own conclusions. But what we can say from this passage is that heaven is that heaven is eternal, blessed partnership and ruling with God. That it's a choice to be with God, to rule with God, to have eternity with God, and that God allows a choice where this is not the case, because that distinction is still made. Even if we take Son of Man as humankind, as image bearers, and then as different people group are separate to that, there's those who are ruling with God, enjoying perfect relationship with God, and those that is not. In this life, And in eternity, God allows the choice. And so before we finish, we briefly turn to Daniel chapter 12. Because when we read the Bible, one thing it is important never to do is to take one passage out of context of the rest of the Bible. And Daniel 12 is the best place to see the overall picture of what the Old Testament has to say about um, heaven and hell and eternity, what happens after we die. And so that's why I've included it this morning. Obviously, in saying that, we need to look at the New Testament and what Jesus says as well, which is what we're going to do next week and beyond, as we lead up to Easter and move beyond Easter. But as a summary, what have we found out about the Old Testament thought on heaven and hell and what happens when we die? Well, the Old Testament points to resurrection rather than a part of us, our soul, for example, going to heaven as a far-off place. It talks of a person dying and going somewhere. It points to a murky place, referred to as shoal or the grave, a place where God is not worshipped. A place which we're not told about, only that God is not present. And if you want to know more about what those verses said, there are some handouts at the back which have a list of passages that are few in number, 
that that talk about this mysterious place. In Daniel 12.2, we see this thought, because we're told that the multitudes sleep in the dust, that when we die, we go somewhere, and the Old Testament isn't clear about where, but we go somewhere, and then that is that until the resurrection. It is not clear in the final passage who the multitudes are, if they're all humankind, everyone who has ever lived and died, or it's just the followers of Yahweh. Verse 1 seems to suggest it's believers, but verse 2 seems to leave it open to refer to all humans because of the judgment that is included in them. And again, this is typical of the Old Testament thought on such things. It talks of resurrection, but does not seem overly clear on who will be resurrected in the first place. And again, see the handouts at the back if you want to explore that more. But in what is clear, and what we can take forward into the rest of our investigation on this, in the rest of this preaching series, as we look at what Jesus taught over Lent, is that God does not in heaven or on earth desert, desert the faithful, those who are image bearers. And no matter what happens, as we said at the beginning of this um, service in the passage in Romans, God stays faithful to those who are living life in order to bear God's image. And we see this in Daniel 12, verse 3. Those who are faithful, who bear God's image, will awake to eternal life with God. So what are we to say? Well, where we started in the new year is where we finish in this part of our series. That God is powerful and has the power to judge. That God chooses to to sustain, to build for good creation. That God uses his power and his ability to sustain for good for you and me. Something that we see most clearly when Christ enters into creation and teaches what the kingdom of God is like, as we will see next week and beyond. But for now, before we sing our final song, let's pray. Lord God, it is difficult as human beings of time and space to imagine what eternal life with you will be like outside the... um, things of time and space. Lord, when we read these passages, it can be confusing, it can be unnerving, it can make us think in different ways, and sometimes we find ourselves at the end of reading such a passage or looking at such a passage with more questions than answers. But Lord, we know that when we question and when we investigate and when we search, you can give give us wisdom and knowledge. And so it's not a bad place to be. So Lord, we pray that as we go away and we think about these things and maybe we read about these things more and we explore about these things, as we look at other passages in the Bible, in the New Testament, um, in Lent and beyond Easter, we pray that you would be teaching us and you'd be helping us to understand and that we would not lose focus, but understand that you have a work for us to do now, no matter what eternity holds, that we are a people called to bear your image and to build heaven right now in our own lives as we live each and every day in relationship with you. In your name we pray.
Our final song talks of how when Jesus was resurrected, it was a sign of the glorious eternity that we can all enjoy and share with God. We sing together, see what a morning, gloriously bright, with the dawning of hope.